Hello, Charlie Gladstone here. Welcome to my Mavericks podcast. Thank you very, very much for joining me. Whether it's for the first time or whether you're joining me again, I'm really grateful to you for coming along. Today's conversation is with Hilary Gallo. Hilary is a particularly interesting, engaging and charismatic man who I first met through our mutual friend, Dan Kieran, the um, chief executive of Unbound Publishing. In fact, uh, Hillary's latest book has just come out on Unbound, and that book is called Fear Hack, and Hillary and I will talk about that a lot in the next 45 minutes or so. It is really genuinely worthwhile reading it, and it will teach you a lot about yourself. I'm slightly reticent about the notion of self-help books, but this is much more what I think one might characterise as a sort of personal development book, and actually is very elegantly and eloquently written and genuinely I think you will find some something deeply resonant and relevant in it. Anyway, I'll let Hilary explain a bit about that and in fact we start off talking about that book. Hilary, as I say, has had um, is an interesting man. He's had a number of different careers. After Cambridge University he became a lawyer for an enormously high-powered firm that's Clifford Chance, which I believe is the biggest law firm in Europe. Soon after qualifying, he left that to run a business and become a jewellery designer, and he sold that business. Then he moved back into the corporate world and really specialised, I think, as he explains in negotiation. And then he left that and became an author and a speaker and a host of classes, helping people to deal with fear. Anyway, I highly recommend his new book, Fear Hack, and we're very lucky that Hillary has agreed to come and do a class and indeed a talk at this year's Good Life Experience. There's a lot of content here, and so I won't hold Hillary up. We'll go straight into the conversation. I'll be uh, along at the end to recommend a few things because I've had a really interesting couple of weeks culturally and come across some things that I've really absolutely loved. So I'll give you the recommendations at the end. But uh, until then, here is Hilary Gallo. I think the best place to start with your work is absolutely now, because you're really brilliant and extremely brave and interesting book, Fear Hack, has just come out. Yep. And um, so, so t- tell me what that's about, and, um, and then we'll kind of work back from that. Um, what it's about? Um, well, it's about fear, and it's about hacking it. Uh, it really is those two two words. Um, I got really interested. I wrote one book, The Power of Soft, about negotiation, which is kind of my my background. It's where I came from, um, and what I realised was that there was something that sat beneath all of the problems I was seeing again and again and again, and that thing was fear. I was seeing people kind of locking up and um, getting very positional, getting stuck, you know, literally um, in a bodily sense. Um, and again and again, I, I, I recognised what it was, and it was fear. So I, I thought, I want to do something in this space, in this, um, uh, about fear. Um, and so I started doing a workshop, and the book is a build on what I've learned in that workshop. Um, and the fundamental thing is to treat fear as your friend. Um, instead of treating it as, as sort of this horrible big ogre that kind of attacks you and puts you into this state of fighting and distress, where all you're doing is fighting this thing, that actually you become more open to it. You, you reframe your relationship with fear and you start to have a conversation with it, you start to learn from it. And that's the hack, really. So, tell, so just, just give me a kind of, I mean, obviously people need to um, read the book or come on the course, but, but give me a kind of precy as to how one even identifies fear, let alone as, such, as, 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 a, as an entity, let alone how one fights it. Um, well, I think fear is a lot broader than we, we think. So, I mean, I get people to literally, we have a thing called the fear wall, um, and I get people just to name a fear and stick it on a note and stick it on the wall. Um, and I think 
through the act of seeing, not only there, it's interesting because people tend to put their thing up on the wall and then walk away. And actually what's most interesting is people coming back to the wall and seeing everyone else's stuff. Um, and I had an instance earlier this week where we did that and somebody said, I asked people, you know, what do you see as the patterns? Um, and somebody said, you know, most of the things up here I feel, I feel from time to time. So I'm recognising, you know, pretty much everyone's fears on this wall I have. Um, and I, I think part of the issue is we don't necessarily identify or inquire about these things. They kind of have us. Well, so, so actually it's not dissimilar to the kind of notion of, of um, breathing properly or meditating in that actually we have to stop and kind of think about things. And, and, and by in so doing, actually kind of a big part of the problem is, in other words, identifying what's going on or what you're feeling or is, is, is almost half of the battle. Is that, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Battle, it's an interesting word we can come back to, but um, I think that's the perennial thing, is, is strategy. Um, we tend to do, I mean, doing is great and activity and, and movement is, is important, but every so often you have to stop or pause, step back from your action and ask yourself whether this strategy you've got for whatever you're doing is working. And I think it's a it's a broader strategic question about... about but the strategy can just be for living reasonably yeah. happily. I mean, it doesn't have to be achieving a, a goal at, at work or something, does it? can be anything. I mean, I'm very cautious as well about being very generic about this thing and saying that this, this generically is good or bad because I think it does depend on the particular of the particular person and the particular situation and the... Yes, and your book is definitely geared towards that, is towards the trying to really speak to the to the reader rather than to a kind of a, yeah. a, a sort of wider audience, I think. Yeah, I'm just, I, I think there's a lot of sort of blandishments about this is the way to do that um, generically. And I'm very wary of that because what I'd rather do is to, um, deal with what's coming up for you, Charlie, in a particular situation, because that means something to you, because you can step back from that where you're, you might be struggling and think about a different strategy for that, which is actionable. Right, That's okay. more interesting okay. than having these sort of generic wisdom about life, you know, which is all very intellectually interesting, but you want something that's actionable in your life, when you walk out of this. But that's how, that's how great art speaks to you. I mean, great, great novels, great literature, great, you know, great films. Totally. They, 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 you know, you take something from the, from, as it were, the, uh, the general, and you think, and you, you, you understand that that's exactly bang on right, and someone else will read the next line and think that's bang on right. And that's the interesting thing. I love um, feedback from the book because one person will say, this really spoke to me. And then the other person will say, no, it was that. Yes. You know, it was that that spoke yes. to me. And it is about your personal experience. Different things speak to different people. And actually, exactly as you say, the same with art, isn't it? It's yes. Not the, it's not the, the artist has this singular vision. It's that there is this thing and it speaks to everyone differently. Yes. I mean, I, I, you know, you can read a great book and you can say, I love that bit. And you can see that someone else hasn't even noticed that bit, but they absolutely love the next bit. Totally. But so, so this book is, um, and there's a bit of a theme emerging on uh, the podcast here. It's, it's an Unbound publication. Correct, yes. Um, which, and I've interviewed, in fact, the last podcast that I um, published was with Roger Phillips, okay. who is currently about 70% of the way to his 50th book or something on Unbound. What, what, I'm, I'm inter I mean, I'm a great fan of Unbound and, and I've interviewed Dan Kieran here and we've worked with them for the Good Life Experience. What, what, what sort of attracted you to doing it in that way, which it seems to me is quite a, strikes me as quite, fun, um, crowdfunding as it were, is quite a brave thing to do rather than going into a publisher which you previously had and saying, can I do another book? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's stupidly scary because you have to put yourself on the line. Um, and I, th I think that definitely appeals. I, I'm, I guess the reframing I'm talking about in the book is, is about power, fundamentally. 
And what I'm, I'm fundamentally interested in is, is how you encourage people to take back their own power. And I think the most scary thing is not how little power we have, but how much. Um, so I think crowdfunding is really interesting because I'd much rather put quotes from people who love the book who nobody has heard of on the back of my book than all the rich and famous people. Because I think actually the, the crowd and the multiplicity of individual people is, is a really interesting thing. And I think that's what, for me, Unbound speaks to, is that ability to be able to reach out to um, yes, a broad I, I, range I, I, of people rather than having to rely on, this, rely on this monolithic publishing industry, which, frankly, a lot of the time, you will get an agent much more easily because you know, you know somebody at the BBC or you... you, you I mean, I've said this you know, before. I mean, our, our book, our, the, the first book we did was published by Random House. And I was just astonished by how much they spent on the book and how little interest they seemed to have in selling it. It was quite... I mean, I would, you know, if I were to do another book, I would, I would definitely try and do it in a, in a more um, personally engaged way. But I think that what, what, what I would find anxiety making about the unbound yeah. thing yeah. is I'm the kind of person who wants to put it, put it up for crowdfunding one day and have the money the next and then I can relax and and yeah. you know I was speaking to Roger and he was saying um, oh no I'm not completely not remotely worried about it. it's going to be completely fine you know yeah. I know we'll get there in the end whereas I'd be like well, I'm 66 and that's nine days that means you know the next 34 is going to take oh god 27 and a half days we haven't got there beat myself up did you have any of that I think that's the interesting thing. I think that's at the heart of some of the fear issue is that if you have a attachment to a particular outcome, if you have a, I see myself wanting, I, as a, I guess as a fundamentally as an introvert, um, I have my own little view of how life should be inside me, and that I'm constantly extrapolating out onto the world. And it, the reality is, it just isn't like that. And so I think. The more I can challenge myself to let go, you know, in the great words of Frozen or whatever, you know, the, the more I can let go of my own crazy notion of what should happen in my little world inside me and embrace what actually happens and what turns up. Um, that's the beauty of life, isn't it? Because you're not living this little world inside you, you're living a world out there. I understand that and that's and very clear. Give into it, give yes. into it. Um, because that's where all the joy happens, isn't it? It's, it's the, it's the marvellous things that you never expected and the connections and multiplicity of things and the fact that things will take longer and they'll happen in a different way, but there's a joy in that. And Hilary has just mentioned Let It Go from Frozen and I never thought I'd have an opportunity or indeed a desire to play that on this podcast, but I've become completely certain that that's the right thing to do now. So here is a little bit of that absolute classic from Frozen. So are, am I, am I, if I'm understanding this correctly, what you're saying in many ways is completely contradicting a lot of, the, of what our education system is based on. So it's based on you know, the fear of failure, if you look at yeah. it in a very negative way, um, and, and, and the notion that you must constantly be on your toes, 
being slightly frightened of failure. Now, it's a very negative way of looking at it, but I mean, it, it's you've got to do this, you've got to get your this exam, you've got to get your GCSEs, you've got to get your this, yeah. you've got to get your that. Um, I mean, so actually you're teaching people to, in, in, to a large extent to be much freer and ergo to, to be successful rather than kind of just to, hey, like, hey man, I'm not frightened of anything, I'm just going to chill out. I mean, it's, it's, you're undoing a, you know, so yes. fundamentally I think we're taught fear drives you forward. You must be frightened of failure. And if you're not frightened of stuff, you'll just be lying around kind of looking at the sky. And that's a bad, you know, and that is a bad thing per se. So you're actually trying to kind of break that down for adults, right? Uh, yeah. Well, I think we, we, we're not born. The child doesn't come out of the, the womb. Um, this has certain fundamental fears of the dark and such, but we're not as racked with fear of failure, for example. It's something we acquire as we grow up, something we're given, something we pick up from wherever. So yes, fundamentally, um, what I'm saying is that you will, I think the, the greatest people in life, they do go off and they build their own thing. They commit to something that's very pure to themselves. I mean, I, I was very struck, um, I think the morning that Nelson Mandela died, I was um, on a train um, somewhere up north, I was just getting on the train and I, I, I was walking behind somebody who was on the phone and I, I got a feeling it might even have been Felix Dennis. Um, and he was on the phone to somebody um, and he, he was talking about Nelson Mandela and he said, you've got to remember that when Nelson Mandela first came to London, nobody would talk to him. You know, he was shown the back door of 10 Downing Street. He was a pariah. Um, and it kind of made me realise that the, fun, the people who fundamentally make the greatest changes in the world, they start off being deeply unloved. You know, you have to have the confidence and commitment to your thing in order to be truly great. And I think we and teach... And perhaps to change. I mean, because Nelson yeah. Mandela, I mean, you know, changed his methods, to be fair, over the course of, a, you know, however many years he was in prison or, and before and afterwards so yeah, he, he was open a, he was very open he was open to change there's a there's a there's a journey of change i mean you look at robert kennedy um who started up being a quite aggressive driven lawyer problems with the the, the underworld and the drugs the, the dealing with drugs and a real hard crackdown and i get the sense he truly learnt and became a strong counsel to his brother president um, and was on a journey of reform from being this this quite aggressive masculine dominant figure to being someone who is more kind and loving and, and people loved him as a result particularly, yeah. particularly the downtrodden i think no but he um, um he delivered the most one of the most amazing speeches forever from the back of a truck on the night um martin luther king was assassinated calming the people of um i forget which city indianapolis or something where he was speaking and the speech he gave was the most fundamentally you know today we have this thing of people building walls and dividing people it's talent to bring people together and to instill calm in the people. And there were no riots in that city that night, which there were throughout many cities in America. He was in moving to a fundamentally really interesting place. Yeah, so he was open to change. And then he change. was assassinated. Yes. Yeah, interesting. You know, open to change, had changed, and then, oh, taken yes. out. Yes. I mean, change, of course. I mean, I, I want to sort of move on to how you got to where you are, but I find it so interesting that changing your mind um, has, has become a bad thing now. You know, it's called a U-turn by yeah. Radio Four, yeah. as if, um, as if, you know, that's a really bad thing. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? And then we talk about how wonderful it is to have a growth mindset. Yes. As opposed to a fixed mindset. Yes, but you're not allowed to in politics. You're really not allowed to. I mean, you have to toe a line forever. You occasionally can, you know, go against the whips. But, yeah. I mean, anyway, so you, the whips. So, yeah. The whips. I know. It's such an interesting. Why do we have that in the? Well, presumably, it is. Like whipping into whipping the, oh, the hounds. Bad into. boy. No, whipping the hounds. I imagine right. it's kind of like you know, because when you're riding, you have a sort of crop. Yeah. But then a hunt, hunt smart, uh, the master has of a, the hounds has a, a long whip. So I always imagine it's from that, but I don't. It may not be. Someone can conjures someone up an image. Doesn't let it? me know if they know if they know the origin <laughs> here. And no googling. That doesn't count. Um, so fear hack is is sort of where you're at now. Um, yeah, you were so, so sort of spooling back from that. Um, you were originally a, a a lawyer working for a high powered firm. Yeah, 
Um, so you left Cambridge, went into Clifford Chance, biggest law firm in Europe, I think. Yeah. Um, and, and served your time there. What, what, what sort of made, what, tell me about that, that section of your life and what made you leave that. Um, I, I, there's something in me loved being a lawyer, the, the detail and the, um, the exposure I got to some really amazing uh, stuff that I, even to this day can't really talk about some of it. Um, and, but I couldn't see myself continuing on in that line. You know, it was a, you had to be dedicated to the work. Um, and I, much as I admired the people I, I was sort of indented to, as it, as it was in those days, I just couldn't see myself carrying on. So I actually left. Um, I had a crazy idea for a business. Um, I literally I'm, I made cufflinks and jewellery and stuff, um, or I designed them, and I left to do that. That's, um, ex- that's an extraordinary um, U-turn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking. Yeah. Um, that's, but, but, I mean, that, so, so how long had you been... At Clifford Chance for when you did that? Um, well, I was articled, as it was called then, um, for a couple of years, and then I stayed for, I was qualified and practiced for a couple of years. Um, so I, about, I think about 18 months after I qualified. Right. And you just, re- you just weren't, weren't particularly happy there? I just wasn't enjoying it, and I saw a brighter spark um, doing stuff for myself. Um, and yeah, and it was interesting the, the number of partners I spoke to when I announced the decision and they said, God, I've always wanted to do that. Did they really? Yeah. You know, I'd love to run my little cheese shop in the Cotswolds or my bakery or my set up. It wasn't yoga practices and all the things we have today then, but it's that kind of, yes. I'd love to go and do. And what was, what was uh, we, you were at that stage, did you not have dependents? I mean, you didn't have children or, or a you, wife or whatever. No dependents. So, no, so it was yeah. a, but, a lot easier. It was relatively easy, but it's still very. It was still very brave. And and how how did that go? How did that feel? What was the experience of, of all of that? It went brilliantly. I mean, it it it, uh, it went very. It, it, I loved it. I learned a lot about getting out there on the street and selling my stuff. I remember the first sale I made um, to a shirt shop. I sold to German Street and to Selfridges and such. Um, and the first big sale I made and I managed to get cash on the nail for the sale, which helped pay my production costs. Um, the guy said to me, I, you know, he heard what I'd been doing and he said, I, I do hope you haven't left your day job. And I literally that day had left my day job right. and I thought, <laughs> okay, I'm not going to say anything. Oh, no, no. No, I said, of course not. You know, I wouldn't be there. Well, I didn't really respond. I just thought, oh my God. Um, thank God I have a slightly different view of my life than he does. Um, so, no, it went well, but I think I got, I struggled to grow it. And I look back, looking back on that time, I mean, I knew Nick Wheeler, um, who went on, was in the early days of Nick. Charles yeah. Turret. Yeah. And I used to sell to him, and I look at what he's done with that business. <sighs> and his and wife I think, owns the, um, the White Company as well. They're quite a power couple. Yeah, and I think, I think, you know, I hadn't quite put my finger on that knack that Nick had of growing a business. I think there's a big distinction in business, and I th- as, in, as in working life, between people who are fundamentally out to make money and people who are fundamentally creatives. And I think Nick Wheeler, um, who I've known for since I was about 15, is fundamentally a businessman. And so it's fundamentally about money. Whereas people like you and I, yes, you need the money. Yeah, but, it, but it's more about uh, you know certainly with that business and with my businesses, it's more about the creativity. So you can be yeah. really. It's very unusual to have one person who's really good at designing cufflinks and jewelry and making money. Yes, yes. It, it and, and and so Nick, I suspect, is is smart enough to get someone else to design his shirts. Yes, and he's just working away, right. and, you know, on peddling the business in the background. And I, and I think that you know from day one, people understand that. And that's a distinction between people who become, it's the same as distinction between people who become copywriters and bankers. Yeah. They know on day one whether they put it into words. But, but you, were, you were, you know, more of a creative. But, I mean, it's still, it, was, it was presumably an interesting thing to have done and taught you a lot. It was amazing because, it, because as I now realise, it was, it was the first time I stepped out of a big, secure corporate environment well paid with everyone looking at you going, you're mad, um, but in the same breath thinking, oh God, I'd love to do that. Did just, I'd just like to linger on that a bit more. I mean, one or two of the partners said that that was great. And what, what, what did your sort of parents or your 
family or friends say when you... Because, I mean, it's a hell of a... Um, hell of a change, isn't it? To have, to have gone to one of the best universities in the world, got into one of the best law firms in the world, and then suddenly decide you want to make cufflinks. Um, yeah. Um, well, I think my, my mother particularly was um, gutted. Um, yeah, I think that's a really tough thing. Much tougher for... That's interesting, though, isn't it? It's much tougher for your parents than it is for you. And in hindsight, looking at it logically, I'm thinking, yeah, that is, that is crazy, but... You know, it's... I don't think it's tougher for your parents. I think it's tough for you to know. tell your parents. And I think that's a real <laughs> distinction. So I think we Maybe. so often... I mean, I, I, my father's only died less than a year ago and, and I had a great relationship with him and we worked together for quite a long time and I had huge respect for him. And if I wanted to do something that was out with his frame of reference that was a big decision, mm. I would always be quite scared about telling him. Yeah. And he would always be supportive when I told him. And that's an interesting so reflection. The fear, was, yeah. the fear was more, and I suppose that's yeah. to do with letting down your parents because I adored him. You know, I always felt that I, in order to, for him to love me back, I think I felt to some extent that I had to do what I thought he would want me to do. But of course, there was none of that. He wasn't remotely interested. He just wanted me to do what I wanted to do. Yeah, and uh, it's only by having the conversation you find that out. I mean, interesting, the second time around when I did it, um, I had the conversation with my mother and told her what I was doing. And she said, well, oh, well, you've only got one life. And I... Yeah, that was a very powerful thing for her to say. Yes. So, yes, you're yes. right. Yeah. Cufflinks, successful small business, presumably taught you a lot about kind of selling and margins and, and yeah. frankly how difficult it is to make money. The VAT return. And, yeah. and VAT returns and all that sort of thing. Yeah. But, but that, wasn't, that wasn't a forever project as it transpired. No. Um, I sold the business. Um, well, I came back to corporate life. I was in a relationship. Um, I wanted to, there's a balance between, as you said before, between life and your business. Um, and I came back to a corporate role. So I got into the corporate world um, slightly through my sort of legal um, side. Um, so I did some legal stuff, but also then moved into the, um, you know, there was nobody wanted to negotiate the big deals and get out to the front of the room. So when you say corporate world, what, what, what were you actually doing specifically? I joined an outsourcing business, um, uh, Ross Perot's old um, EDS. Um, so we were doing some of the early days of privatisation. Oh, I see. Okay. You okay. Know, we took over the HMRC and the DVLA technology from government um, and provided that back under a contract. And it was sort of very complicated... Um, deals, multi-year God, deals. Yeah, I can imagine. You know, and the sort of thing that's got a, ended up having a very bad name uh, with Carillion and those sort of things. But I guess this was in the early 90s when it was kind of the, the sort of next new thing. Um, government shifting stuff off the balance sheet. Mm. Kind of I came to an impasse. I mean, I literally went home, and I talk about this in the first book. Um, I went home to my partner at the time one weekend, late on a Saturday, because we had this intense deal. And we all started to believe our own story, you know, that we were right and they were wrong. And this was our customer. And I went home to my partner and she called me out. Um, and f I kind of went through an epiphany of realising that I wasn't, this wasn't working either for, in the negotiating room, and it wasn't working for me personally. It was driving me to a place that was unhelpful. So I had to, I actually left that organisation. That's when I joined what was then Anderson Consulting. And, started to, to work this out. I had to reinvent myself. And I realised that this sort of banging the table alpha kind of approach is... So how did you, I mean, so this is really interesting. So, I mean, now, you know, looking at you, you've, you've made a, a fourth career out of, um, out of, you know, teaching this and, and writing yeah. about it. And, but, but how did you, so your partner called you out and, and you were intelligent and sensitive enough to think, shit, she's got a point. Hmm. But how, how did you then go about retraining yourself to, or to get back to your, you know, to use your phrase, to get back to your core? How did you do that? I, I think it's a long process of just opening up to... I, th I realised that what I, was, what I was doing was essentially shutting off the, f the, the feelings that I, you know, my awareness of not only the world around me, but also the feelings I genuinely had about who I really was and what gave me energy and joy and, um, you know, the choices I'd really like to be making in life. Um, so 
you know, it's that realization that I, I literally I'd be looking at a tree out for a walk, and I'd look at the tree and go, you know, that tree is going to be there long after I'm gone. You know, it's got a, you know, there's a there's a world here that our life is actually quite short and and fleeting, and actually I've got a limited time to live this life um, to its full. Um, and there's a lot more in me that wants out, that wants, there's a kernel in me um, that doesn't want this stuff, that wants to be out in nature a bit more and wants to be alive to the sort of things that really give me energy. And realising there's a whole bunch of stuff that I've encouraged myself to enjoy in life that actually it doesn't give yes, me Yes, yes. You know, these, these fixes, um, whatever they might be, um, they're not actually giving me much joy. And so you before kind I mean, of get to that place, you're going to enjoy the good life experience. By the way, I can tell you. <laughs> but um, but so so you you so you you understood that, and then you started to change. And then how did you start to get um, uh, gigs, as it were? You know, um, how did you get, how did you break into the world of of of? I mean, ma- most of your um, courses are, are presumably corporate, are they? Uh, it's a mixture. Um, to, to be frank, um, I I was held. I stayed in a corporate career um, for a, quite a long time, and I was I was scared to leave it. You know, I I, I, I in my mind. I'd look at. Um, I mean, this is not an epiphany to people who are in that place to 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 think about it. But as a general example, what happens I think is you build all sorts of worries and fears about what might happen in a different future world. So I was constantly worried about how I'd pay the mortgage, how I'd provide for my family, how I'd replace the very good income I had. Um, So I built this cabinet of worries about that thing and I never did it because I worried about it so much. And I just got to a point where I just said, you know what, I'm just gonna do it. I'm just gonna back myself and I've, and I, I literally, I, I did get to a point. There was a, there was a point where I fell out with my boss, and things weren't working. You know, it was working one way, but not in another. And I realised, you know, I've just got to get out of this. And I've, I literally, the most cr- difficult creative act I had was to write my resignation on a blank sheet of paper. Where do I start? What do I write? And I, once I'd done that, just things started to open up because I left the job. I walked out of a well-paid career. Um, and I thought that I was jumping out of a plane. I literally, I'd be in free fall. And the morning after I woke up and I realised the ground was still under my feet. It was still there. And I realised I just had to back myself. I had to commit to who I was and what I believed in. And I've, ever since, I've just committed more and more deeply to backing myself. And the work has kind of come because I've... But you work very hard as well. I mean, you, it, it's a bit, you're, are you being reductive here? I mean, because... Yes and no. I think it's unusual to... I mean, I think one of the things that I find that a lot of young... You and I are almost exactly the same age, if not exactly. One of the things I've found about people who are sort of 30 years younger than us, who, who quite regularly come to me and say, can I and chat to them because they kind of want to be like me or you. Um, one of the things I think a lot of people don't understand is that actually there are various paths to success but the far and away the most likely one is just to work your backside off um so yeah. I, I assume you've worked pretty hard to achieve that or- i've certainly worked very hard in overall i but i i think it's i i i do look around at people who are you know younger generation and they're ploughing their furrow much more strongly and with more resources and um, so yes I do work at it but I think it's it's the clarity of the commitment that matters almost more than the work. Um, Right okay interesting. So I'm very committed to it I'm very clear about and I try and be clear about what it is but I don't always I want to enjoy life as well. Yes. I mean I if I if I worked at this to the extent that I blew myself out um, that wouldn't be smart either. So I think there's a there's a wise, you know, Tom Hodgkinson with the stuff he talks about and the stuff you talk about, Charlie. There's you have to be you have to be balanced in that, and yes, committed, but and you have to you will do this stuff because you work at it. But I think also 
sometimes you can work too hard at it. I think there's also... It doesn't help. There's also enormous reward to be had, in my experience, from having an influence on good people, helping them. You know, I, 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 you know, I think that what you're doing is really genuinely potentially changing people's lives. I mean, you know, young, old, in between. I mean, you know, I'm sure that lots of people come to your courses or read your book and think, oh, that's bloody great, and then go back to exactly what they were doing before. Mm. But, I, but the, there clearly will be a proportion of people whose lives are dramatically changed, and that must be staggeringly rewarding. Is that right? Well, that's what I do this for, really. Yeah. I, I, love, I really love to see that spark in someone's eyes when they make a you know, realisation or a breakthrough. And as you say, they don't have to make a fundamental change in their life, but it's just that seed of that glimmer. Do you keep in touch um, with any people who, who have, um, have sort of used what you teach as a yeah. catalyst? Yeah. Yeah, and it's, but I'm not, I, you know, I, I, I'm not as, I don't keep a mailing list and I don't, there's loads of things I should do that I, I don't. Um, but every so often someone comes back to me. I had someone, I, I can't talk about it in detail, but somebody who'd been on a fear hack and it had, she got, you know, from being a shy retiring person who wouldn't leave her house, she was now up on stage doing some amazing things um, and, yeah, completely changed yeah. the track of her life. Wonderful. Just one workshop that I'd done for free and, um, um, and that was absolutely marvellous. Yeah, um, wonderful. And I, and I do think that some really great connections and work comes out of I, I did fear hack because I had a belief in it. I never expected um, a book to come out of it. I never expected corporate work to come out of it. I never expected my coaching practice to grow, the executive work I do to grow as a result of it. That's not why I did it, but it has. It's kind of because I've grown as a person. Yes. So I've become yeah. a better facilitator. I've become a better person, I think, and a more, you know, I've, you know, things like this have happened, and um, you know, I've met really interesting people. Oh, as I think a it's one of the most of... wonderful things. I mean, you I don't realise that, no, do you? When no. you start, I'm you so. Start. I mean, I think it's the most. I'm. I'm so, I feel so deeply um, blessed that through my work, increasingly, I'm just coming across fascinating people. I mean, it's like, hmm. it's, it, for me, it is one of the most profound oxygens. I mean, it's quite yeah. incredible. So we're, we're very lucky that you're, you've agreed to do a fear hack at the, um, at the Good Life. So I, I'm, I'm intrigued. I mean, I think I know what that's going to involve, but, but sort of, I think that, you know, certainly a few hundred people or thousand people listening to this will, I hope, be planning to come to the Good Life. So, so tell me what, what those, you know, those lucky enough to get onto this will, will do. I mean, how does a course work, a kind of a three-hour course or whatever? Um. Well, I think the most, most one of the really important things is that we have a sense of safety. Um, I think there's something about the environment um, that is is important, um, and I talk about that, and that's part of the reframe. Or sort of a, a comfortable, quiet, private room kind yeah, of. Yeah, there's something about, there's a space, in we all have spaces in our lives where we feel, you know, whether it's because we sing in the shower, it's that realization that there is. I'm a great believer in psychological safety. Well, I think we could, we'll do this in the. I haven't. I don't think I've said this to you. I think we should do it in the um, the library in the castle. I think it'd be great. I mean, there's a there's a. It's a room. It's quite. I mean, it's quite a big room, but it'd hmm. be a really nice room to do it in. It's kind of. It's got lovely windows, but it's also. Yeah. Closed. That. I mean, I think it'd be. I, I want to make it as special as we can, and that's a nice, wow. safe location. I think. Yeah. So there's a there's a psychological thing, and I think that's a. That's a theme that people are realising, that, that, that if people feel psychologically safe, they become so much more open, powerful. Um, um, but probably the, I start off the exercise by doing a thing called, I call the fear wall. Um, and it's a, it's a very different wall from Donald Trump's wall. Um, it's, a, it's kind of a wall <laughs> no of... shit. <laughs> it's, kind of a, it's kind of a wall of hope, you know, because essentially what people do is is just identify a fear they have and just literally put it on the wall. Um, and it's really interesting because people put something up and then most people tend to walk away. But the real, really powerful thing is, is then seeing the whole. Um, and we spend quite a lot of time just having conversation about what people see. 
um, literally by realising that they're not alone. There's a sense of this that, I mean, we're we're so encouraged to be individualised and, and separate and alone and the loneliness that comes from that and the mental health problems that come from that. But isn't it fantastic when we can genuinely help each other and we can yes. realise that yeah. I mean, even amazing. the really cool person in that room that everyone's a bit in awe of also has their own fears. Cool and person is the friendly, open, honest one. Yeah. Yeah, not the one with the best trousers. <laughs> not, oh, but if they've got both of those things going on, then that's fantastic. So... Um, there's something about just having that conversation and people started to open up. Um, so there's, that's a really powerful thing that I've kind of developed and built on and love. Um, and then we just move on to talk about what the reframe is. And um, I guess I, I, Fear Hack has become a series of, of things. We learn more about what those fears are really telling us. So you have a dialogue with those with those fears because there's an issue that we tend to just know that we're scared of this and we 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 run away from it or we hold it in or it's a monster and we don't really engage with it. Yeah. So we don't learn what so, it really is. So essentially, you get you'll get the group together. You'll go through that process of identifying and then help through your instruction and the kind of um, mini community, if you like, in yeah. the room to kind of help everyone to kind of come out at the other end thinking, boom, yeah, something's a, changed there. Yeah, the key thing it leads to is a, it's back to strategy. It's back to saying, look, what am I doing that's unhelpful? How can I see what I'm doing that's, that's actually giving my fear energy, giving, to what extent am I fueling my fear? Um, you know, either this big fear that I have or consecutive fears. Um, and helping people to just think, what can I do differently? What, how can I re re-engage, how can I re-strategize, how do I, and also how do I, it's not just about the thing, it's about your state. Yes. So we tend to focus on the thing that's giving us the fear. What we don't tend to realize is it's, it's a lot of it's about how, our, how we're feeling, our state. And you, I don't think you can really engage with the thing until you think about your state as well. Okay. So okay. there's two aspects yes. to this. Um, if got, you can got... start to manage your state when you... When, you, when you're in front of a room of people, you don't just need to be thinking about the thing you're going to do. You need to be thinking about your own um, nervous system and your state because that's almost the most powerful thing. If you feel right, you will deliver um, and you will be so much better. True. And so that's a key yes. element of it too. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sort of slightly intrigued. I mean, this is a really final question, but, but um, so that, that kind of gives a sense of, of, of how that will work on that day. If you do a fear hack for a company, yeah, and you have a, a, a number of people in that fear hack that, by definition, are frightened, yeah, by this definition, how difficult is it to get people to expose themselves in that in that corporate thing? I mean, I can see it amongst friends or people yeah. that don't know each other. I mean, I, I but I can't, I'm kind of thinking if I got my sort of you know if I invited twenty of my people who work for me to come into a fear hack. I kind of imagine everyone would be looking over their shoulder at well, I can't say that in front of him, or you know, I can't say that in front of her. What, what I mean, how do you deal with that? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, two things. Firstly, I, I think today we're moving. There are more and more organisations that are um, have more psychological safety. So, isn't it amazing if you work in the organis an organisation where people do feel comfortable? to say these things in front of their teammates and their, mm. their, their bosses and things. And I've been genuinely surprised how many corporate type situations I've come into where, where I've said, look, you can put these things into a hat. You don't have to own up to them. Put them in the hat and I will put them on the wall. Um, so I've given people the option of just being anonymous. And then once we've got stuff on the wall, you know, we can just talk about this stuff. You know, we don't know where it's come from. Um, but people haven't needed that anonymous nature. Um, and I think more and more that that's not true everywhere, but we are increasingly in a world where psychological safety and the ability to have those conversations without having to look over your shoulder, that's the critical secret source of a fantastic modern organisation, really. So part of that is about how can you achieve that, because if yes. you can achieve that, that's amazing. Um, but the other thing is that 
you don't just have to look at your own fears. This is this is about corporate fears. This is about societal fears. This is about so it's been really interesting to put stuff on the wall which is holding this organisation back, holding our team back, holding these are shared things that we all worry about. Um, so. I think I've been surprised to the extent to which people increasingly want to engage with the the organisational mm, set mm, of yes, and it's fear is kind of a, a word for what it, the short it kind of what it really means is what's stopping us from achieving our full potential. Yes. So actually, the more exciting yes. thing is well, it's blockage. Why not, are we yes. not? Why are we blocked from not doing what might be deeply fulfilling, amazing? So like leaving this, this fucking company and, and well, it, it could be that. <laughs> that's what I'd be frightened of as well. It could be that, but it could also be how we, why are we not reinventing the market for for, for smoothies or for um, you know alcohol or, or drinks or pubs or you know I think there's so much opportunity in reinventing, completely reframing our corporate and I totally creative agree. offers. I mean, I'm being facetious. I think I think it's, it's fascinating, and yeah. so it's. It's actually far more than fear. It's about what's stopping us from reframing our... Because there are lots of businesses that are about to be born today that are going to... People are going to walk into them and go, oh, my God, I never thought of doing that. Mm. And there's something about mm. our stuckness and our patterns that yes. keeps us there that this thing is also about. So it's a much broader I totally question. agree. I mean, it's, 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 it's very, very interesting because... I mean, I, and I don't want to. I mean, I, 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 I want to let you go in a minute, let free you from this this basement hell. I, um, I, you know, this this is something I've been learning, and I mean, I'm 54 years old, and and I've been learning it this year particularly with trying to reframe the good life as a sort of yeah. smaller boutique festival to kind of open. You know, we've only done it five times, but you, we've become, or I have become, very set in my pattern, and and it, it's very interesting to kind of just. Put it all out there, in, in you know, and yeah. say say to myself, what you know, why don't I do things differently? Oh, hold on, you know, why don't I work with her? Why don't I just give her this yeah. bit of work to do? Why don't I give him this bit of work to do? It's so interesting that, yeah. that I can feel that that blockage that you're talking about, which is how I frame it, really resonates with me, yeah. and it's been really it's been interesting. I mean, I I think I've kind of overcome it, but but you know, I, I only by only by letting myself go. And trust, I suppose, trusting other people, of course. Trust. And trusting, trusting committing to yourself as well, you know, just... Yeah, I think part of my problem is that I thought for a long time that I was the best to do the things that I did simply by virtue of the fact that I did them hmm. rather than any other metric whatsoever. <laughs> anyway, listen, thanks so much, Hilary. Um, I've, I've, uh, that was, that's fascinating. And um, we've, you know, we've talked. Total pleasure, Tony. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you very much to Hillary again. That was a fascinating conversation, and it was very good of Hillary to come to our shop and cafe for, that we have for peddlers in Notting Hill. And I mentioned that we we're in the basement. We actually have a sort of basement storeroom, stroke kind of meeting, stroke sort of office downstairs, meeting room, stroke office, and it is actually pretty dark. And we recorded this during one of the very cold spells that we've had recently and of course there's no light in the basement and slightly damp so anyway it was very good it was very tolerant of him to come and sit down there um, his book Fear Hack is highly recommended I hope that I managed to unpack what he's doing for you to an extent there and the career that has led to that point and that you'll come to the good life experience and perhaps get involved in his class or indeed his talk. Anyway, uh, thank you very much. And do, incidentally, read Fear Hack. It, 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 it is really genuinely worthwhile and easy to read. And it's also got a beautiful cover. So look that up. I said at the beginning that I'd recommend a few things at the end. And I've had a really good start to the year in terms of culture. And uh, if you have the chance, go and see the play of My Name is Lucy Barton at the Bridge Theatre in London. I think it's on for about three weeks and, and we went last night, me and some of the children. I think it was absolutely wonderful. I very much liked the book and I loved the play. It is a monologue with Laura Linney, who has most recently, I think, been absolutely wonderful in Ozark as one of the lead roles. Uh, 
I have uh, also been listening to the James Blake album, the new James Blake album. I think it is absolutely the album that James Blake has been moving towards making. I, I as you may know from previous recommendations, I'm a big fan of James Blake's, and this is a great, great record. It's a real, it's much more poppy than his previous work, but, it, but it's absolutely wonderful. And um, I love the way that Alex Petradis, if that's how you pronounce his surname, um, I do it by sight. But anyway, Alex, what's his name in The Guardian, described James Blake as the Barry White for fans of Burial. I've also loved the Fire Island film on Netflix about the greatest party that never happened, which, as someone that runs a festival, is both absolutely, completely compelling and totally horrifying. There's also a great series on Netflix that I haven't heard people talking about called Seven Days Out, which is a kind of beautifully shot, very warm, optimistic, positive series of maybe half a dozen films about the last seven days before a major event. So they have things that you wouldn't think were terribly appealing, like the big dog show in New York and the Kentucky Derby and um, perhaps even the uh, Chanel show in Paris, and they, they show the lead up to those. But it's, it's really engaging. It's, it's really, really well done. And uh, my last recommendation for the moment for anyone who's listened, interested in popular culture is the Beastie Boys book, but on audiobook. It's on Audible. It is incredibly well done. It's very original, very inventive, very sort of um, sparky. It has fascinating cast of people. I think Scarlett Johansson, Spike Jonze, um, Kim Gordon, Elvis Costello, Jarvis Cocker and loads of other people reading different chapters. And it's sort of full of um, life and energy, and I highly recommend that. Anyway, that's it for today. Thank you very much for joining me. See you soon. I hope everything's well. Thank you. Bye-bye.